Welcome to the Anderson Business Advisors Podcast, the nationally recognized preferred provider for asset protection and tax planning in the nation. This show is for investors and business owners looking to save on taxes and build long-term wealth with Toby Mathis, an attorney, author, business owner, and a featured instructor at Anderson's Tax and Asset Protection event held throughout the country. Enjoy the show. All right, and welcome to Tax Tuesday. My name is Toby Mathis. And I'm Jeff Webb. And we're going to bring some tax knowledge to the masses on this. What is this? The September 13th edition, Yep. which is two days before a tax deadline, which is why Jeff looks like extremely excited. And then you have another tax deadline. Oh, yeah. So like it's just boosh, boosh, boosh. this is the season. Everybody thinks it's April 15th, but no, if you're uh, if you got a good accountant, this is the time of the year that they're all busy getting hammered away going through all this fun stuff let me just do one thing i can see my chat i'm going to grab my little q a so here's the rules you could make comments via chat you can ask questions via the q the a feature be light today we have a lot of accountants doing return prep we still have a bunch of folks on including dana elliot jeff trisha and troy and uh, patty and ander you got Jeff and I, we're going to answer your questions as best we can. But if you're thinking today is the day I brought 10 questions, just ask one of them. <laughs> Try not to kill us. They're all getting slaughtered as it is. All right, let's jump in. So we have our simple rules. You could ask questions. We already said that. Ask questions via the Q&A. You can ask questions during the week. Uh, via email at tax Tuesday at Anderson Advisors, uh, dot com. Hey, these are general question and answer. And uh, a lot of those, some folks out there just asking away for other people. And you'll see one of those is one of our questions today, asking for a neighbor. But we want to make sure that, uh, that you know that if you're going too into detail, that we're going to ask you to become a client before we answer. We're willing to give general uh, Q and A and answer general questions, but if it gets a little crazy, you're going to put the skids on it and say, "All right, hold on for a second. This is getting into the advising. We're not just answering a simple question." All right. So uh, the whole intent of this, by the way, is to be fun. We want you guys to enjoy taxes and start looking around for all the things that could benefit you. We're going to try to bring to the surface that there's a lot of tax benefits out there that you may not be aware of, and hopefully, you go away uh, having a little bit of fun getting a little bit of knowledge and putting some more dollars in your pocket with that knowledge, which is what we like. All right, here's, uh, we're gonna go through all the questions that we're gonna answer today. So don't think we're gonna answer all these right now. So we're gonna go through and uh, and we'll knock that down. What is the, Patty's, all right. Patty, you can just interrupt next time. <laughs> I was looking at the chat going, hey. All right, here we go. I have numerous multifamily syndications with bonus depreciation losses on a K-1. They were obtained between 2018 and 2020 as a passive investor and owned by a multi-member LLC. Hey, me and my wife. Starting in 2021, and currently I have real estate professional status. So this is going to be an interesting question here because uh, I can already see what's happening. In 2022, I have two dispositions of properties that were purchased as a passive investor. Can I use the original bonus depreciation losses to go against gains on the sales? FYI, I have elected to group all of my real estate activities and properties together. So this is going to be a good learning experience. It'll be interesting to go through that. So we'll, we'll get to that one here in a second. 
it is user error, Sherry. Sometimes, uh, sometimes I'm so used to coming in here and just clicking that sometimes I lose my mind. All right. I am an active options trader that files a Schedule C for expenses and a Schedule D for gains and losses. I've heard of mark-to-market uh, tax filing. What are the benefits of one over the other? Good question. We'll get into it. If you guys know what traders are and, uh, and what mark-to-market is, you'll already know the answer. If you don't, this will be a good learning experience. I have a list of 10 501c3 organizations that I want to support in perpetuity, as long as they continue faithfully in their current missions for the advancement of religion. I am weighing the option of a C-Corp private grant writing foundation versus a charitable trust. I worry that the makeup of the board of a private foundation may drift over time after I die, and grant writing will eventually shift from 5013 organizations that align with my values to 501c3 organizations that do not. Okay, so we'll address that in, in, in specificity. We'll, there, there are some things there that we want to correct, and uh, we'll give you some ideas. Short-term rentals, when depreciated with cost segregation, allow for the depreciation to offset income without having real estate professional status if you materially participate. So that's a mouthful. <laughs> Uh, most real estate syndications are long-term rentals with depreciation only offsetting rental income, which is passive. If you are involved in a hotel syndication or a short-term rental syndication, can the depreciation offset active income or would it just go to the passive income? Would the rental income in a hotel syndication that is short-term rentals be considered active income or passive income? I like these types of questions because they're good teaching this is a little bit convoluted, but when we dive into it, it, it's actually, these are great questions for, for teaching a principal. My neighbor asks me this question. Hey, neighbor. He purchased his first house home when he was in his early 20s, which resulted in his dad needing to co-sign the loan. He paid off the loan and found out his dad's name is on the title and not his name. Uh-oh. So dad owns the house. Hmm. <laughs> He purchased a second home and has since been renting out the first, the one titled in dad's name. He would like to sell the rental house, but does not know how to proceed since it's titled in his dad's name. Wow. You seen that before? No. Yeah, it's kind of weird. Kind of weird that you bought it and somehow dad's name got untitled. I wonder if maybe there's two people, but anyway, we'll get into it. I've heard Anderson talking about Spartan Investment Group, which buys, develops, owns self-storage units across the country. Yes, we do like Spartan. We've been working with them for years and they do a great job for our clients. I'm considering using my self-directed Roth 401k to invest in that company, probably in a syndication, but whatever. Would I be subject to UBIT or UDFI tax by using my Roth 401k for that investment? Really good question. And we'll dive into that for you. Is short-term rental income still considered active if I have a property management company running the short-term rental business for me. So STR stands for short-term rental. So it's Airbnb, BRBO. I do not rent the property to them. They simply manage the business for me. I'm a real estate investor and pay nothing or almost nothing in taxes every year. That's awesome. My husband, on the other hand, I would like it, is a 1099 contractor with a huge tax burden. Would it benefit us to put some of the properties under his name? I immediately asked, like, are they filing jointly? Yeah. It sounds like, you know, so we'll, we'll dive into that one a little bit. You have mentioned multiple times in your videos that borrowed money is not taxed, but you never explain it in detail. 
All right, let me explain it in detail. Borrowed money is not taxed. I'm just kidding. There are some cases where it can be, but I have multiple investment properties, each in its own single member LLCs. My CPA says if I refi, I have to take the money out as an owner draw because they are in an LLC and it's going to be taxed. Please help clear this up. Can I refi investment properties inside an LLC and take the money out tax-free? So we always save the best for last. So we'll get to that one before we're done. Hey, if you guys are looking to, like you have lots and lots of questions, you're getting into real estate investing, you're getting into business ownership, whatever, you're just interested in taxes or uh, asset protection or just how that world operates, come to my YouTube channel. We have a lot of them, lots of lots of videos. We've been doing this for years. I was talking to somebody, but we have videos from 2014 and stuff like that. Not still up, but the, we've been doing that for a long time. Actually, we started doing podcasts. I actually remember I was in Seattle and that would have been in about 2003. And we're like, eh, it's a fad. We did a whole <laughs> bunch. We're like, eh, it's a fad. Nobody's watching. And then uh, you look at this. Wow. It gets a little crazy. All right. So absolutely come and join the community. Uh, if you just click on subscribe, you don't get inundated with anything. You're not signing up for any marketing list. It just lets you know when videos come out. I think you have to do the subscribe and then click the little bell. I don't know where the little bell is. Turn on notifications. There we go. The little bell. Click that bell if you want to know when new videos come out. We usually put two or three out a week, pretty consistently at least, two, two long ones and then some short ones. But uh, love creating content for the YouTube channel. It's so much fun to share information with people. Speaking of sharing information with people, Jeff, you're going to have to help me on this because my brain exploded reading this. I have numerous multifamily syndication with the bonus depreciation on K1. So first off, syndication just means I'm an investor in a group. Usually it's an LLC. Sometimes it's a limited partnership. Mm -hmm. I invested and they invest in multifamily. And you can really accelerate depreciation on a multifamily. You don't have to do the 47 and a half years. That's kind of boring. What they do is they break it into its components. It's called segregation, not bad segregation, but good segregation. We're segregating the assets. So you know, I always use the example of carpeting. Last five years, why are you writing it off over 27 and a half years? Yeah, right? So they're writing these things off really fast. And if you're a passive investor, mm -hmm. you can't use those passive losses on anything, right? Right. You just got to, what do you do? You lose them? You Now they're suspended. Meaning, suspended. You meaning can, you can use them sometime in the future, but yep. not for now. So that's the important concept first. When you have these losses... And they're passive, they offset other passive income. There's only two sort forces of a passive income. Businesses in which you do not materially participate and rental. So if you don't have any other rental income, those losses just get suspended. You carry them forward. So let's keep going. They were obtained between 2018 and 2020 as a passive investor and owned by a multi-member LLC, me and my wife. So that just flowed onto their return. So the chances are their partnership together. And those mm -hmm. losses are being carried forward. This is where it gets interesting. Starting in 2021, and currently, I have real estate professional status. Why is this important? 
Well, once you have real estate professional status, yeah, you can deduct any current losses from your real estate, but all those suspended passive losses, they're stuck until until you sell substantially everything. This is where it's really important. This is where people sometimes stub their toe. They go into accountant and they say, I heard this great thing called real estate professional. I qualify. And they say, okay, we'll make you a real estate professional. The downside of real estate professional status is if you already have losses, you got to dump all your stuff before you get to take them. Or you got to have passive income that will offset, Mm -hmm. which is possible. But again, if you're doing these syndications and getting these big bonus depreciations, that's not making money. That's creating paper loss. And yes, if I'm a real estate professional, I could use that. My current losses, but my old losses are stuck. I can't do anything with them. So here's what they ask. In 2022, I have two dispositions of properties that were purchased as a passive investor. So this could either be multifamily. It could just be individual properties. I don't know which one. But passive purchases are being sold. Can I use the original bonus depreciation losses to go against the gain on the sale? FYI, this is the most important line here. I've elected to group all of my real estate activities properties together. I love grouping unless we have loss carry forward sitting on your return, in which case now I would say get rid of those losses before you group because otherwise they're going to be trapped in the group. In order to take that loss, what do you have to do? Take the loss on that property once they're aggregated. Yep. You got to sell substantially all of the properties that you aggregated. Yep. Which could be 75 to 80% of the properties, maybe more. Maybe more. Yeah. They would say substantially all of the properties would have to be sold to release that. So normally, like you have a loss carry forward Mm -hmm. on a property and you sell the property, it releases that passive loss and it becomes non-passive loss. Correct. So if I had $100,000 in a syndication and I sold the syndication, the $100,000 of loss carry forward gets released and would offset the gain that I had. Correct. Does that not happen now for these people? It does not happen now. Now they're going to have, they'll still have some capital gains and they have this loss carry forward and it just keeps carrying forward. You don't lose it, but it doesn't get released. So you Mm -hmm. still have this passive loss until you get rid of all your properties or substantially all your properties. Right. Kind of stinks. Or if you have passive income. So you have the passive loss sitting there waiting for you to have passive income. And passive income is not just from rental real estate. It could also be businesses in which you do not materially participate. So Jeff opens up a pizza shop. He runs the place. I'm a, I'm a 50% owner, but I don't do anything. I don't participate in the business and it makes me hundred grand a year. Great. My real estate loss can offset that income mm-hmm. that I made from the pizza business because I did not materially participate. It's actually a really important line there. So what do they do here? They're just toast? Uh, pretty much they are. Uh, there is a, another regulation, 1.469, blah, 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 mm-hmm. uh, that says the character of an asset is the same as the character of the income or loss that it's generating. Mm-hmm. So normally if you sell a passive asset, a rental property that you can, that gain is now passive mm-hmm. and you can offset passive losses. However, 
when you aggregate these properties and become a real estate professional, you've turned your rentals and, into a trader business. And let's do a timeout here. Okay. You are a trader business as the taxpayer. You're no longer a passive participant in real estate. But what if you didn't aggregate? What if you never elected to aggregate the properties and you said, you know what? Treat each of my properties separately. Then are you okay? Uh, it's possible that some of those properties could remain passive. Mm-hmm. If you have a number of properties, the syndications are almost definitely passive. Yes. So here's the big important thing. If you do not aggregate, I need to qualify as a real estate professional on each property. Mm-hmm. And only the ones that I materially participate on, each having to meet a separate test for material participation, which is why we aggregate. So we don't have to do it on each property. But let's say that you have two properties that you materially participate on, two that you don't. Then you could still have passive and you could still have your real estate professional status with the losses on these ones that you're materially participating on. So somebody says, so in this case, is it better to not group? Chances are it would have been better to not group, but chances are they wouldn't have been a real estate professional either. Chances are the real they have to kind of do. Yeah. I, I don't know that it's worth being a real estate professional if I can only do it for one or two properties and I own 10. Yeah. The other kind of wonky thing that happens when you aggregate and have passive losses that are going to be suspended. Uh, where was I going with this? It's okay, Jeff. It's tax season. I know. You're thinking of six other returns. So you're thinking about <laughs> aggregating, and all of a sudden you make an aggregation election oh. and you have the passive loss. Okay. So I, I know where I was going because back to the pizza shop. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have all these spent. It's impossible to buy more rental property to generate passive losses because as soon as you buy another rental property, you're a real estate professional. You're a real estate professional and gets aggregated with these properties that you, you already have. It, it almost is like rental properties are no longer passive for you. Mm-hmm. You have to have because you're aggregating all your activities together. So you're either a real estate professional or you're not. And you're either all your properties or your per property. And if you're aggregating them together, it's all one property. It's not this property, that property. It's all one big property. But you still have businesses in which you do not materially participate, mm-hmm. which, by the way, could be an Airbnb. Yes, it could. It could be a pizza shop. I think that's a great idea. Yeah. So you could sit there and go, you know what I shouldn't do? I should not materially participate on my Airbnb. So I have a bunch of income that I can offset. Now I have these lo- these these passive loss carry forwards. I'll never pay tax on it. I'll just be wiping it out. It'll be free, like so. That's why you do. Can you aggregate the properties separately? I think when you make an aggregation election, you're electing to treat all your rental activities as yep. one activity. So, unfortunately, Jeff, great idea. You're thinking right, but I don't think it's possible. All right. See, that was a good one. I'm going to go back to it and just look at it for a second. The FYI was the secret sauce. That's why when I see FYI, sometimes I'm like, huh. That's good information to have. It's I would I like to know that you aggregated because that's the whole calling of the question. Otherwise, we'd be sitting here saying, Did you aggregate? Almost all real estate professionals aggregate. In fact, the way that the IRS wins all those cases against the real estate professionals isn't that they're not a real estate professional. They meet the first prong, but they did not materially participate on their rental activities each individually. They have to to combine them. So you have to, you're almost always electing to treat them all. Uh, What qualifies as a real estate professional? It's under 469 C7, and it's a two-prong test. I have to spend 750 hours in a real estate trader business, and that's an annual test. 750 hours, and it has to be more than 50% of my personal services. 
If you're filing a joint return, one spouse has to meet that test. And then number two, you have to materially participate on your rental activities. You do that, immaterial participation is a seven prong, like there's seven tests that you could qualify. Any one of them is all you have to do. The easiest is I do everything myself. Uh, Number two would be if I do 100 hours and nobody else spends 100 hours. Number three is if I do 500 hours. And by the way, if you file a joint return, they add your time together on the second test, not the first Mm -hmm. test, second test. But don't worry, there's I have it broken down on my videos and YouTube. If you go in there and you want to know, like I think it's I always say it's like the number one uh, real estate strategy. It's cost seg with a uh, with a real estate professional designation. All right here we go. I'm an act. I know we're supposed to be only an hour, so I'm going to do really hard to get okay. you out of here. I am an active options trader that files a schedule C for expenses and schedule D for gains and losses. I have heard of, which means they're a trader, by mm-hmm. the way, there's a term for that. It's called trader status. I've heard of mark to market tax filing. What are the benefits of one over the other? So we love mark to market. That was sarcasm. We could just tell you all sorts of nasty stories. Mark to market is mark to market changes capital gains and losses into ordinary gains and losses. Why is this important? Well, capital losses are limited on the individual return to three thousand dollars of losses a year after you offset all your capital right. gain. So um, net capital losses are limited to three thousand dollars a year on a return. If you do mark to market. And I don't want to go too deep into what mark to market is. It allows you to claim it as an ordinary loss. So unlimited. All, so all these stock traders go out there and say, you need to make a mark to market election so you can write off your losses. That statement right there should cause you pause. And I hate to say this. Actually, I don't hate to say this. It doesn't bring me joy to say this. About 5% of active stock traders make money. That's being really generous because they did a 15-year study in Taiwan of active stock traders, 1% had profit mm-hmm. over that 15-year stretch. So, and, and I, I know a bunch of you guys are already pissed off at me. Oh, I make money all the time. It's like, I'm sorry, but the odds are not in your favor. You're better off being an investor. But hey, neither here nor there. If you're going to spend the time being a trader, number one, you should get to write off your expenses. And that's what they're doing here. And realistically, you need to be doing about 750 trades a year. You can't be taking more than two and three weeks off. You have to be consistently. Now, and I say about 70% of the trading days, you need to be actively trading. You do that. You're a trader. You can write off your expenses on Schedule C. You still report your income on Schedule D, which is this weird thing where you have zero income on a Schedule C, which is which means mm-hmm. you're just going to be a big loss on a sole proprietor. So, and you write trader on your return, you're, you may as well audit yourself. You may as well just say, hey, you know what? I want to be in the highest audit rate known to man because that's, that's what you're doing. You're basically saying, hey, IRS, I'm losing money. Ha ha ha, you know, but mm-hmm. you're making, you're reporting your income on your D. You're taking your expenses on your C. You're going to have to meet the test. I've, I've seen so many court cases. They always find a way to deny you what you're what you're looking for. And even when they say, okay, you're a trader, then it's the second one. You can't write off the loss. If I am a trader, that's capital loss. I'm limited to capital gains or I get $3,000 a year. So if I have $100,000 of capital losses as a trader, guess what? Can't use it. 
unless you make a mark-to-market election. And the thing about a mark-to-market that I hate is a mark-to-market is saying, uh, treating your, your, your investment account as though it's liquidated on December 31st of every year. And it really sucks because you may be, like they always had the Christmas rally, and then all of a sudden it treats it as though you sold, even though you still have the security. And if it tanks the following two or three months, which happened in 2002, it's happening here. We just saw it happen in the pandemic in March. We had a 20% drop. We just had a massive loss today. Like you see all these things. What if you're having to sell your stock to pay the darn tax bill, even though you never sold your stock? So I saw this happen. I saw Qualcomm run up, but then it ran right back down right after the uh, first of the year. And all these people that were traders had these huge option contracts. They made all this money, but they never sold. So they had a $100,000 capital gain, short-term capital gain. They owe the tax on it at their rate. And at that time, it was like 39.6 on some of these. And the stock wasn't worth what the tax bill was anymore. And I always looked at that and said, why would anybody willingly put themselves in that situation? And that's mark to market. I, I'm not a big fan. You may hear some people say, well, wash sales don't apply to mark to market. Wash sales, you it, can get around is, anyway. That's such a meaningless argument. It's a, a fractional portion of the entire argument. Yeah. I like to tell people who want to do mark to market so they can claim their losses so I can save them even more money by telling them not, not to invest. invest. <laughs> a lot. I, I got into a big one. And it was in the 90s and I'm beating the heads with a CPA. And I was like, if you're planning, if you're planning around your clients losing money at their endeavor, tell them not to do that endeavor anymore. Right. Your planning should really be that you're breaking even or making profit. And then making sure that you're getting the most tax advantages. And I said, in either case, you're not filing as a trader. There's there's not a world which I live where you'd file as a trader, mm-hmm. barring like the the maybe the fraction of one percent where somebody's really doing this and they're good at it and they accept the risk. And there's very few people that I've met over my life that would fall in that category. Maybe Marque, and then there's a few a few others that are out there where I'm like consistently year after year they make money. Then you don't need the mark to market election. It doesn't do anything for you. All right. I have anything else on that. Nope. I just say, let's blow it up. Do not do the mark to market, please. And just be, does the mark to market election primarily convert the capital loss to potential net operating loss? Uh, yeah, yes. it could. Yeah. That's it. Your capital loss is no longer capital. It's considered ordinary loss. But if you're good at investing, it's going to turn your capital gains that are at a lower rate into ordinary gains Yep. at a much higher rate. What's the difference? Because you're, um, you're doing short-term trading, you're still at ordinary income bracket, right? Yeah, but if if I'm um, if I'm doing mark to market and I'm at the highest tax bracket, I'm paying thirty-seven percent on these gains instead of mm-hmm. what normally would have been twenty percent. Yeah, on capital gains on long-term so, on long-term capital yeah, gains. Yeah, most of these guys. Most of these guys are going to be short. Yeah, because right. you would not qualify as a trader if you had long-term capital gains. Capital yeah, yeah, they 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 blow you up on that one too. Uh, is it possible to set up a non TTS business for traders who don't meet the TTS qualifications, nor do I want to meet them. Swing trade options. Yeah, what you do, Taylor, what you do is a uh, a partnership, an LLC tax is a partnership and then have it managed by a corporation. And so it's like usually about 20% that you'd give the corporation. It's not being paid a management fee. It's just literally getting paid to, to manage the LLC. And the LLC is engaged in investment activities. That's it. It's so simple. 
saves you a lot of trouble. But you, you know, realistically, you need to be having some a good sized amount of money in there to make it worthwhile. I would say at least twenty-five to fifty thousand. Uh, if you don't file as a trader, then what category would you file? You're an investor, Gary. If you're not a trader, trader does not exist in the tax code. Like you couldn't go look it up. It's something that somebody made up, I think in the eighties and they said, Hey, it's not fair that you don't get to write off expenses. I want to write off expenses because otherwise you're, you're limited to investment expenses, mm-hmm. which is margin interest. Really can't even write off money managers anymore under miscellaneous itemized deductions. You can't write off hardly anything. Right. So it, and it says, is an investor under an LLC? You could with it. But I, what I do is I put the corporation as a part, as a partner. So the corporation, if you make $10,000 and the corporation has two of it or 20%, 2000 would flow into the corporation, expense it away, let the corporation do everything. And the corporation is not trading. It's not a trader. It's managing the assets in an LLC or it's managing the LLC. All right. 501c3s. Let's jump into that. I have a list of 10 501c3 organizations that I want to support in perpetuity as long as they continue faithfully in their current missions for the advancement of religion. It was Voltaire, I believe, who said, if you have two religions in a town, they'll cut their throats. If you have 30, they'll all live in harmony. (laughs) I could hear somebody laughing horribly. Anyway, that was Voltaire. I believe that's Voltaire. Anyway, I am weighing the option of a C, and I think there's some truth to it, right? I am weighing the option of a C-Corp private grant writing foundation versus a charitable trust. I worry that the makeup of the board of a private foundation may drift over time after I die and grant writing will eventually shift from 501c or 501c3 organizations that align my values to ones that do not. I'll just leave it at that. What do you say to that person? The thing that ran through my head the whole time I was reading this is you can't control things forever. No, you can't. So actually what I like in this circumstance, uh, I don't know how you feel about it, but I, I think this is perfect for like a charitable remainder trust. They want to do it in perpetuity. though. They want to do it in perpetuity, but I would rather just when I die, the money goes to the charities. Yeah. And you have to trust that they're going to do what they said they're going to do. So I always look at real life examples. And the one that I enjoy looking at the most is Hershey's. So the Hershey school, I think was... 1905 that Milton Hershey sets up this school, which was for training orphaned boys on agriculture so that they could grow and that they would not be a burden on society. Now it's the Milton Hershey school and it's boys and girls. Oh my goodness. And it teaches high school and elementary and takes these kids and their parents don't just have to be, uh, passed away. It's not just orphans, but it's also children whose parents are incarcerated or their parent is unavailable. And I've met a bunch of kids out of that school. It's done. It, it, it's grown like crazy. I use it as an example because the Milton Hershey Trust, which is a charitable trust, is worth over $12.6 billion now. It started off with a few million in the early 1900s. And here we are, you know, 120 years later, and it's lights out it's just kicking tail it has a museum and a bunch of other stuff too so i look at it saying hey you should have a little bit of flexibility just in case because like you know you never know what the future is you know you say here's the advancement of religion what type of religion what type of parameters do you want to put what if you know a somebody's belief 
comes to fruition. Somebody shows up and says, by the way, I am so-and-so and does a bunch of miracles. And everybody's like, oh my gosh, I was so wrong about my religion. This one looks way better, right? Is you want to have some flexibility no matter what you're doing. And you're not doing a C-Corp, period. You're not doing a private grant writing. What you're doing is a private foundation. And then you explain in detail your values that the board should be adhering to. So for example, Milton Hershey wanted to train these children something so that they would not be a burden on society. At the time, it was men who were non-productive that were the burden on society because women at the time were either they were not necessarily working or they were being at the time it was the norm might be that they're married off, God knows what, right? It was it was a different time, different day and age and I'm not making any commentary on that. I'm just saying is that the big worry was boys, right? So here's how he was solving that issue. Then it morphed and now it's no longer just a boys issue, but you would have something that was set up that was just for the support of these organizations. And you would very, very clearly list your values. So even if things shift over time, even if facts shift over time, it's your values. And you just have to be specific and give your board direction. Because in 100 years, whoever's sitting on that board needs to be able to discern what values you want to establish. And it's not just, hey, I want to support religion. You're going to say, these are the things that are most important to me. And these are the organizations that most closely align. And I want their successor or an organization that closely resembles their values Mm -hmm. to be the successor. And if you do that, you're going to be fine. Things might shift, but realistically, it aligns with the values that you list out. I think that's the most thing because I see the organizations that align with my values, spell out your values and then say, here's the organizations that I believe meet that at this time. But you're right. 50 years from now, they might not. So you want them to be swapped for something that does meet with your values. And, and it's really important when you're doing this to determine to determine what your flexibility is. Uh, and I'll give you an example. Uh, for the past several hundred years, the Episcopal Church has been all male-led. Hmm. Uh, and then they decided to ordain women. Yeah. And it virtually tore the church apart. But that's the kind of things you have to consider may change in the future. Is this a deal breaker or not? Which is why you spell out your values. Right. Yeah. And be specific. Yeah. There's certain things that I've, I've been asked to draft that I refused. I said, here you go. <laughs> Off with you. <laughs> right. you are, are, are these sometimes challenged, though, in court or no? No. Not unless you're trying to do something illegal. If you're doing something reprehensible, then again, you, like we had a, a it was something that was pretty evil, and we're just like we're not going to be, we're not going to touch it. But it doesn't mean somebody's not going to. Like you have Church of Satan and a bunch of these other things, and their nonprofit, the Church of Weed, and all this weird stuff. Mm-hmm. It's like cool for you, not really going to touch it, but somebody might. And hey, your values might be something that, yeah, five hundred one c three could probably support that. It's bizarre what actually qualifies as a religion these days. So Mark Delgershio used to have some really good examples of stuff that he saw. And I'm sure that Kareem could tell you some uh, ones too, because he worked at the IRS. But end of the day, your values, list them and make sure that somebody understands 
the organizations at the time of your passing that, that had those values and then give them the ability to replace them if somebody does not continue to to walk those values. Yeah, that is important. And it would not be a charitable trust. It would not be a C corporation, private grant writing foundation. It would be a private foundation, just period. They're, they're perpetual. All you have to do is have a convention for putting the board and it has to give away 5% of its assets every year to those organizations. You could list more, but if you want it to continue on in perpetuity, you probably want to give them the flexibility to go probably five to 10% if you want it to continue on forever. Otherwise it would eventually deplete itself. All right. And by the way, I think the national average for gifts from private foundations was about 11%, just so you guys know. So everybody thinks private foundations just sit there and get big, but they do help a lot of people. The stock market sometimes goes crazy and does great things. Sometimes they get more gifts and they do actually do a lot of good. They're not just rich people vehicles where they park their stuff. Although, yes, rich people park their stuff in private foundations. Does not die. You don't have to worry about your kids' spouses and making weird decisions. That's actually a pretty good estate planning vehicle. All right. Short-term rentals, when depreciated with cost segregation, allow the depreciation to offset active income without having real estate professional status if you materially participate. In English. It's a business and it's ordinary loss as long as you are materially participating it, no different than a pizza shop, right? If I materially participate in the pizza shop, I get to write off ordinary loss against anything I make. If I do not materially participate, then I'm a passive participant and it's passive activity loss rules. I can use the the loss against other passive income. Why is that important? As we keep reading on. Most real estate syndications are long-term rentals with depreciation, only offsetting rental income, which is passive. If you are involved in a wholesale syndication or short-term rental syndication, can the depreciation offset income or would it just go to passive income? So the hotel syndication, short-term rentals, it's a regular business. That's your pizza shop. Are you materially participating? If yes, and you're involved in the day-to-day operations or you're meeting the hour requirements of the pizza, of, of running the hotel, then that would be an active loss. If you're not, then it would be passive. So mm-hmm. would the rental income in a hotel syndication that is short-term rentals be considered active income or passive income? And mo- most investors, unless you're the GP or you're running the hotel, like you said, mm-hmm. uh, you're going to be a passive investor. You're, you're not working in the business. You're designed to be passive. Yeah. And you're, this, the whole syndication, if you're not in the management team, mm-hmm. you're a passive investor. You're likely a limited partner in this syndication. And this is where it gets weird. If I am in a rental real estate syndication that's kicking me passive loss, and I'm a real estate professional, that can become ordinary. If I am in a syndication, so long as I'm grouping all my activities, we go back to the very first question we had. If I am in a syndication that is not rental, this is hotel, it's ordinary business, seven days or less, so it's not rental activity anymore. This is a regular business. Then the only question is, am I a, materially particip- am I a material participant or not? If I am, it's ordinary active loss or non-passive loss. If I am not, then it's passive loss, mm-hmm. but I could use my passive, you know, 
it's, it's a, it would be passive income or passive loss. So if it's income, then I could use my other rental losses against it. Uh, if it's loss, then it's just passive loss that I would use against my other passive income. And, and you've probably heard us talk about active participation in real estate for long-term rentals. This would not fall into that because it's considered trader business. It is not considered a real estate it, activity. This is not a rental activity, right. period. So a hotel syndication or short-term rental, just remove the rental and just call it pizza. Anytime you see short-term rental, just pizza business, because that's the way you should be looking at it. It's not a rental activity anymore. My neighbor asked me this question, Jeff. What did he ask? Uh, He asked, hey, he purchased his first home when he was in his early 20s, and his dad co-signed on the loan. He paid off the loan, but then he found out that his dad's name is on the title, not his. Then he purchased a second house and has been running out the first house. So he still has that first house that's all paid off and it's in his dad's name. He wants to sell it now, but he doesn't know what the heck to do. Dad's on my title. This is horrible. Actually, I might be wrong about this, but I think this has an incredibly easy fix to it. Yeah. Couldn't the dad just quick claim it to the son? Dad, let's say dad quick claims his interest over. Yep. says, here's my interest. You get it now. What's his basis? I would transfer his old basis over just the way the dad had. Yeah, I think gifts carry yeah. the, the, the gift or basis. So it'd still be the same deal if the kids sold it. Would it be a gift? I Now, that's the part I, I question. I'm not sure it would be if the son has paid for everything. Mm-hmm. Um, Except the dad could sell it. It's the dad's yeah. asset if his name's on it. Yes, the dad could. And the kid may be misremembering. They may have said, hey, your dad has to be on title. You're going to have to sign these documents. And then once you pay off the loan, you could transfer it to your name. And then you don't remember any of that because all you remember was I'm buying the house. And then who wrote off the interest on the loan? Did you, did dad write it off? Did he write it off? Mm-hmm. I'm kind of with you. I'm like, hey, you know what? Gift it. And it's a rental. So then 1031 exchange it. I don't know what your holding period would be. I think that you would get the dad's holding period, right? When you gift, when you get their basis and their holding period. Now, if both their names are on the title. I think he said it's only his dad's. I thought he did too. Cause my not next, his name. It says not his name. What happens to section 121 exclusion? I thought the exact same thing. Cause you have to own it and you have to have lived in it as your primary residence two of the last five years under 121. But they're not asking it. So what I would say is you would you you would not meet the requirement to have had your name on it. Yeah, I don't think so either. So the IRS would say you did not own it and reside in it. You need to. And the only exception to that is if it's a married couple. I yeah. Believe. And one, one of the things we're talking about with having your name on title, we see this a lot with timeshares. You don't actually own the property, so you can't deduct the mortgage interest on it. Yes, I, that's why I said I would, I would be curious to see who is writing off, who is writing off the loan. If it's an error, and you said, "Hey, uh, you know, we mistakenly had my dad," and you just kind of did a, "Let's just change it now," and then we say it was an honest mistake and we never intended it. I still think the IRS looks at it. You know, if if you go, you're not going to go under exam. So let's just say you just it, it said, "All right." I let's, think it was transferred and, yeah. and treated as though I've owned it all those years. But if you get in, if you get under audit, I think the IRS is going to have some pointed questions because 
a lot of people say this stuff and then transfer things and they play a little shenanigans and the IRS blows it up. Yeah, it would have worked out better if you had fixed this while you were still living in the house. Yeah, and better off while you were still paying for the loan. I understand dad needing to co-sign, but you would not have needed the loan at all if you were not, if you're not on title, you don't need to be on the loan. They didn't need you. They needed your dad, yeah. which, which just tells me like, huh, something may have shifted again. I have a feeling there was probably a misinterpreted conversation that took place with the lender right? where they said, Hey, you can't be on it. We don't want to risk you, but you could be on the loan to gain experience. And then as you pay that, eventually then you could refinance the house and put it in your name. But my guess is that the bank knew exactly what it was doing when it put dad on the title. Yeah. And, the only, and dad the only, probably knew too. The only other reason I can see not put him on title was if uh, he was a minor and what, couldn't contract. He was in his early twenties. So he's not, he has capacity to, to execute contracts. Yeah. So he, it was one of those things where you usually just get a co-signer on a loan and yeah. you're, you're on the loan and the dad's not. I mean, excuse me, you're on the house and the dad's not. In this case, they had it on dad. So could have just been a mistake. And that's what I don't understand is if I'm the bank, I want the son on as a primary and the dad dad on there as backup because then I got two people to go after if this deal goes south. You have a co-sign. You still got it. So it's it's right. dad's house, but you got you got both on the hook. So it's kind of weird. It is weird. But it's secured by the property, so the bank probably didn't care. They're like, I don't care whose name's on it. <laughs> You know, you guys, we can go after you guys, but really we just, we're just going to sell the house if you guys don't pay. Just don't burn it down. Yeah, don't burn it down. But you could transfer it and it's a gift. You have a 12,550,000 or some ridiculous number right now. No, it's not 12. It's it's 12 million something. I forget the amount for the, the uh, federal gift tax mm-hmm. exclusion. It's a huge amount. You have like $12 million you can give without having to worry about it. File your gift tax return on this one though and say, hey, this is the gift. This is the value of it. The, the value of the house. If the IRS ever looks, you can, I'm sure there'll be, it doesn't, there's no tax owed. So they'll be fine. Uh, so they'll be fine. All right. I've heard Anderson talking about Spartan Investment Group, which buys, develops, owns self-storage units across the country. They do syndications and self-storage. They have one that has this an ongoing syndication where they they buy lots of deals and sell them inside this the the, the fund. And then they have individual projects where they're going in and buying, here, we're going to buy these four units. And then they exit them after they they fix them up, get them operating more efficiently, and then sell them. Mm-hmm. I'm considering using my self-directed Roth 401k to invest in that company. Uh, so you're not investing in the company. You're investing in a syndication that's owning the, the property. Would I be subject to UBIT or UDFI by using my Roth 401k for that investment? Jeff, what do you say? Uh, the UDFI... Well, possibly. Well, not in the 401k because 401k is not subject to UDFI. IRAs are. What, what, what Jeff's saying is UDFI is unrelated debt finance income. So if I have a property, a house, or we'll use anything, self-storage unit that's in a syndication and they lever 80% of it. So they come in with 20% cash and they lever it up and, and borrow 80%. 80% of your income is considered financed income. It's unrelated debt financing. It's not. It's unrelated to the investment because we use debt. Somebody else, we use money that we borrowed. If it's in an IRA, that's taxable. If mm-hmm. it's in a 401k, it's not. So if you're doing a Spartan investment, they use debt. So they're going in with cash and debt 
to, to acquire these properties. And then they fix the management. They use their software. They use the, the, the people, the free storage. They have these, they have a bunch of sophisticated software that they use on all their facilities. And it makes it much less expensive from an operating standpoint that increases the net income, which increases the value. And then they exit. So you're not going to have any UBIT, which is unrelated business income tax or UDFI if you're using a Roth 401k. But if you used a Roth IRA or a traditional IRA, you would. Yeah, the rental self-storage units is considered rental commercial real estate. Now, where you might see a tiny bit of UBIT is a lot of these places have they sell boxes and locks and stuff like that. That could generate a little bit of UBIT, but it's going to be... They would specify on there. They would specify on there that this much is... It's kind um, of crazy. And Ryan and that group have been awesome over the years. We don't get anything for recommending them either. There's not a relationship there like that where we say, give us a dollar for every person we send. No, we just like the fact that they make our clients money. Yay. Mm-hmm. So they do a good job. Yeah. If, if you like the investment, I wouldn't worry about the UBIT portion of it. It's, it's going to be insubstantial. Mm-hmm. Speaking of good investments, here's a good investment. This is my partner, Clint Coons, new book, Next Level Real Estate Asset Protection. I did make fun of the cover two weeks ago because I am a juvenile for whatever reason. I think it's funny that it has a goofy picture and I made fun of it, but it's actually a really good book and you should go to Amazon and buy it if you haven't already, because it's a really good value. I think it's only 22 bucks on a hard couple cover. It's a good, you know, well put together, but uh, also you could do the Kindle version and the Kindle is like 10 bucks. And if you want to learn about how to protect the things that you're investing in and make sure that you don't leave them for somebody to take away from you, it's a, that's a great place to start. The other place you can go, and Patty, I, I, I'm going to surprise you with this one, is you can always come to our tax and asset protection events. I think we have one on Saturday coming up. You can certainly come in and, and, uh, and, and spend the day a Saturday learning about trusts, corporations, LLCs, how they all work together. Absolutely free. On Saturday, we do them every other week for the most part. And uh, they're very well attended. There's a big group. We have a lot of fun. And you'll learn uh, just a lot about how how to make sure that people can't take your stuff. I would say lawyers, snoops, and Uncle Sam, they're the ones that like to take your stuff away. You work so hard. Please don't leave it just lying there for somebody to pick up and take. All right. Jeff Rowe is STR income, which is short-term rental income, VRBO, Airbnb. Mm -hmm. Still considered active if I have a property management company running the business for me. I do not rent the property to them. They simply manage the business for me. A uh, short answer for the short-term rental is this is probably a passive investment if, you, if you're if you not managing the rental at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the tests we talk about is the substantially all the time is I do myself. Mm-hmm. Second test is I do at least 100 hours and more than anybody else. You'd have a tough time with the property management company. The court cases have mm-hmm. never really believed that one. So then you have to fall back to the 500-hour test, which becomes really difficult if somebody if you have a property manager. Between you and a spouse, you could hit that 500 hours. If you had enough real estate, short-term is not rental. 
income. So you can't aggregate it with your other real estate mm-hmm. has to be your, are you materially participating on this property? Not any other rentals on the properties that are the short-term rentals. You could probably group that short-term rental, right? You can say, this is a business. I'm engaged yeah. in these businesses together, yeah. but you are, otherwise you're, it's not going to happen for you. And it's going to be considered a regular business. Again, remember what I said about short-term uh, rental pizza shop. So is pizza shop income still considered active? If I have a pizza management company running the pizza shop for me. So imagine you have a pizza shop and you hire pizza management LLC to come in and manage it for you. Is that a active business for you anymore? No, you are a passive investor. Somebody else is doing all the work. So yay. I have invested in Toby's pizza business. I want a pizza. All right. I am a real estate investor. We should we should have a sponsor that's a pizza. We should find a pizza company. Jeff's Pizza. Jeff's Pizza and Barber Shop. This would be the best. I'm gonna have a coming for a haircut and a piece of pie. I don't know where that comes from. I'm horrible. I am a real estate investor and pay nothing or almost nothing in taxes every year. My husband is a 1099 contractor with a huge tax burden. Would it benefit us to put some properties in his name? I had the very same question you did. Aren't you filing jointly? Yeah. If you're not filing jointly, you're making the situation way worse. I'm killing it. And I got no tax. This knucklehead is just killing us with taxes. Should I give him some of my properties? If you're jointly, it doesn't matter. If if you're jointly, yeah, it's all going on the same return. Uh, If you're filing separately... And you put some rental properties in his name, and I'm thinking long-term, it's not going to change anything because he's not going to be able to deduct any of those losses. No. So if you're a real estate investor and you're paying almost nothing in taxes every year, it sounds like you're probably a real estate professional. And if your husband has contractor income and he's you're getting killed with taxes, then no, you, you don't have to put any properties in his name. You just need to make an election to say, hey, you know what? I'm a real estate professional. All of my losses that are wiping out my income, we're going to allow those those extra losses to come over and wipe out his income too. So that it might be that you're just not doing that. I would be curious to see if there's any passive loss carry forwards where somebody just, a lot of times they just have no idea that real estate professional status exists. They meet it. It's obvious, but the accountant just has no idea it's even out there. And, and there are a couple of reasons you may... Uh file separately. Uh, one is if your husband's name is John Gotti or Whitey Bulger. And watch you sitting on the hill. <laughs> Bulger keeps popping up in that one. Oh my gosh. Or, or, or your spouse has substantial back taxes that he hasn't paid. There's times where you want to make sure that, that you're kind of keeping separate. Or if you're, if you think your spouse, this goes back to the Whitey Bulger thing is maybe doing things not on the up and up. Yeah, I don't see any of that here. They're I don't just, either. I, I think you're just sitting there going, Hey, I don't, my income gets offset. My husband's doesn't. What can we do? You could do the properties. The other thing you do is set up a charity and donate some of your properties. So if you're doing low to moderate income housing, if you're doing recovery housing, if you're doing housing for uh, a disadvantaged group, it could be veterans, it could be elderly, residential assisted living. It could be uh, any of those categories, anything that's helping society. And here's the, here's the rub. 
I can donate a house and write off its full fair market value, not what I paid for. So I'm just doing this right now. I have a, a gal, I'm not going to get you into all the specifics, but she was going to be dehoused. Let's just put it that way. And we are in a position to say, we'll get you that house. You never have to worry about it, ma'am. You'll always have a place to live. So we bought the house. We bought it for about $120,000. And I'm looking at it going, I think I'm going to give it to one of the charities. So we just had it appraised. It was 300 and some thousand. It's gone up way up. I get the deduction for 300 and some thousand. Will it save me more than my original investment? Yeah, absolutely. That's why it's there. Yay, everybody wins. Lowers my tax bracket a little bit. Gives me some tax relief. And I didn't have to come out of pocket other than the original investment. And yeah, it's for a good cause. I like stuff like that. You could look at doing that too, because Mm -hmm. you might be surprised. As you're doing this depreciation, as you're writing things off, you haven't been having to pay tax, you may look at it and go, whoa, I would love to get some extra benefit on some of these homes that I've had for 10, 20 years, whatever. I may have even depreciated them completely. And you're like, I don't even know what to do with it now. I get no tax benefit. It's just churning out rental. Okay, great. Give that to charity. Take the full fair market value. So it's it's kind of fun. All right. You have mentioned multiple times in your videos that borrowed money is not taxed, but you never explain it in detail. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry. Sorry. I'm not sorry. I will get into this because this is actually, there. there is a way that it could be taxable. I have multiple investment properties, each in its own single member LLC, except in your situation, there's no way it's taxable, right? My CPA says if I refi, I have to take the money out as an owner draw because they are in LLCs and will be taxed. Darn it. That's not true. Please help clear this up. Your CPA is wrong. Jeff? I was going to go harsher, but you told me I couldn't. You could go as harsh as you want. All the CPAs out there, are you guys all just going like, feel, what? Feel free to put in chat. Yeah. What, what do you What I want to say. Yeah. Feel free to, to, to chew up the other CPAs. Usually we have a few on here. It, it's actually fairly common for a bank to have you take a property out of an LLC to refinance it. If it's disregarded to you or if it's in a partnership, you do that, you refinance it, and you put mm. it right back in. There's no tax consequences. Somebody says, get a new CPA. Yes. No, no, they they may be well-intentioned. So here's when it can be taxable. I put $100,000 in a syndication. The syndication levers that money. And let's uh, let's say that it raises a million dollars and borrows $9 million and gets an asset that's now $10 million. It goes up to $20 million and they refi it again. But this time they refi it for 15 million and they pay off the previous loan and they distribute to the shareholders a whole bunch of money. Mm -hmm. The first $100,000 that you get back tax-free, you don't have to worry about it. But what if they give you more than what you put in and you're not on risk on that loan? You're not a guarantor. There is no risk to you. That could be taxed as long-term capital gains as a distribution in excess of your basis. But that cannot happen in this situation because you're a single member LLC. It's you. You're on the hook for these. This is not, you're not a passive investor in this thing. You're not not on the loan. Even if you, even if they had a non-recourse loan, you don't have to worry on this. But yes, the proceeds of a borrow of borrowing is not income. 
unless somebody forgives it. Yes. Good point. So I could loan Jeff a million dollars tomorrow. He pays no tax on it because it's not income. So they always say, but you never explained it in detail because it's not income. There's in detail. When I borrow money, that is not income to me. It's not my money. I still owe it back. The day that somebody says, ah, da, 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 you don't have to pay it back is the day I have a tax event. Yep. So, so normally you can take property in a partnership or a disregarded entity to you. You take it out at cost. You put it in at cost. You can take mm-hmm. it out at cost. You can do this all day long. If you have an S corporation or a C corporation, you got a whole different problem because property has to come out at fair market value. And in those cases, you could possibly have uh, taxable consequences of removing property out of an S corporation or C corporation. Easy peasy. If you want the best strategy that we see works year after year, no matter what, it's buy assets, allow them to appreciate. And by the way, there's two factors for appreciation. We're experiencing one of them right now, which is high appreciation, Mm -hmm. I mean, high inflation. Inflation and growth will drive your asset up and then you can borrow against it. So we use Elon Musk as an example. If Elon could just lever his stock portfolio if he wants to, and he probably does. We use what are called security-backed lines of credit, which means you can borrow at any time. They're really cheap, by the way. We just did one with Morgan Stanley. It was 2.5%. Wow. So you can borrow up to about, uh, you can go as high as 70% of the value of your stock portfolio, which, you know, after today, <laughs> we're not going to talk about an equity call. <laughs> right. Uh, yeah. We would never go above 50%. I always say 50% is your magic line on, on, on borrowing. Don't go above 50% on anything because because you could have something that dips down. You you know, you rarely do you see it go worse, but but it does happen. So you just have to be smart about it. But if you're borrowing against a blue chip portfolio that, that could have bonds in it for all we care, mm-hmm. your bond, there's bonds right now paying over 9%, guys. You just have to get a bond that's that's tied to inflation. And it's over, it was like 9.6% last year, some, some stupid number, right? And then you could borrow against it at 2%, 2.5%. You're making money and you actually have the cash to go out and invest it again. That's how the wealthy do it. That's how you see it over and over and over again. They always lever their assets. When, when there's an opportunity, they lever it. And they don't go crazy. They usually are in a position to be liquid to where if they needed to pay it off, they could. So like, if I'm borrowing money against stock, I have the stock. That's not too bad. Look at that. We just hit all answered questions. Those our guys uh, for Jeff, Elliot, Dana, and Troy, and Patty, and Andrew, you guys kicked butt today. You just saved our tax team from having to come on. So they did a great job. Uh, and so six minutes over. Oh, shoot. I'm supposed to stop at four. Bad, Jeff. I know. All right, guys. Thank you, Sherry. Anyway, hey, yeah, pop on to the uh, YouTube channel. We do put these up in recorded format after. So if you came late or uh, if you're one of those people that you missed one or two and you want to see what was on them, you can listen to them a little bit faster in the podcast channels. Or you can go on to YouTube and listen to them there and watch. Uh, if you have questions, uh, this is where we grab the, the questions that we uh, that we answer is just shoot them to tax Tuesday at AndersonAdvisors.com. We're still going to answer your questions. We do it as a courtesy because there's so much credit out there and there's so much bad information. And if it's in our wheelhouse, chances are we answer it 20 times a day. Anyway, we're just going to answer yours too. So there's some good questions that just popped up. As soon as I said, they're all answered. It was like, 
Everybody asked, asked a question, but these guys did a great job. Happy tax season. Hopefully you guys realize that there's still some things you can do, even on your 2021 taxes. It's not too late to do cost segregation, for example. It's not too late if you're getting killed with taxes on your 2021 to do some, some strategies, maybe look around. Even we were talking about that mm-hmm. first question in the aggregation election. Part of me is always like, did you aggregate for 2021? Is there time to amend that to maybe not aggregate? I don't know. You know, is there things that we can look at to maybe get yourself out of that pickle? The, the the clock is not stopped for 2021. You got 32 days to fix things. You got it. So reach out if you have any questions. If not, uh, gosh, hope you guys have a great next two weeks. Uh, it'll be exciting to guys see where everybody's at in two weeks. In the middle of the tax season, we're going to mm-hmm. go easy on Jeff here. And uh, so we'll have Jeff on for at least one more. Maybe, maybe, maybe you need to take a break right at tax time. Maybe we'll have Elliot or somebody step in. So that uh, you don't have to get kushmushed. I think that's the term for it. Kushmushed. So have a great two weeks. We'll see you guys in two weeks. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. Show notes for links to everything mentioned in this episode can be found on our website at andersonadvisors.com slash podcast. Be sure you subscribe to our podcast. And if you are already a subscriber, please provide us a review of what you thought of this episode.